welcome team. Awesome. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and his power. Amen. Thank you so much. Now, if you have your Bibles, once again, let's open where we read earlier. We're continuing our journey. Last, last few steps of the journey as we're making our way through Hebrews, this wonderful book God's given us in his New Testament. And again, you'll find that on page 1008 is our text there. Hebrews chapter 11, uh, page 1008. Now, as you're turning there, let me encourage you, if you possibly can, be a part of our family gathering uh, that we're having this afternoon at 5 o'clock. We began those about a year ago. Matter of fact, exactly a year ago uh, this Sunday that we started holding these. So once a month, an opportunity for us to gather and to share in a little more uh, intimate way, share in a little more uh, setting of just being open and uh, celebrating what God's doing, praying with each other, worshiping. I'm going to do that and do that tonight. We're going to be talking in particular about uh, the 2020 vision that we have before us. And so we'll be hearing about the aspects of that. But one in particular, as you noticed, is we're going to include a little field trip in this. And uh, so when we say wear comfortable shoes, you won't be going that far. Uh, but you might need uh, sunglasses for, and also some of us, uh, I've heard some might need a hat. Now, I don't know about that, okay? I don't know what that's all about. That didn't used to be that painful. It was something's going on. I think there's something to this global warming, okay, that's taking place on the top of my head. But uh, what we want to do is uh, just literally just go outside and walk around and show you uh, where, uh, by God's grace, over the next uh, uh, few years, uh, these buildings are going to be erected that are part of our 2020 uh, campus development. So we're excited about that. We're continuing to move forward, and we'll be sharing some about that tonight, and a little bit of the plans and the vision and a schedule, Lord willing, about that but also able just to go and just literally see where these are going to be. And I'm going to tell you right now so that you won't get upset, so I hope you'll listen. Uh, when you come tonight, your favorite parking place may be uh, inaccessible, okay? So please don't drive over the cones or the orange tape. We do have uh, law officers that help us from time to time. I'm not just telling you that, you know. But... Uh, uh, we, we're doing that to outline the building, so you'll need to park here on the east side or up on the uh, west lot, and uh, then at the close, we'll be over in the gym area for some fellowship, and there we'll talk a little bit about what's planned for that area as well. I think it's going to be a very unique and encouraging uh, time for us as a church family, so invite you to come. If you are not a member, you're still welcome to come and enter into that. And that's at 5 o'clock this afternoon. Well, let's look to Hebrews now, if we might, as we are continuing to be reminded that Jesus is better and we should never settle for anything less. Jesus is better. Now, I've told you a time or two over the years uh, that when I was in college, I had uh, several different uh, jobs on campus while I was an undergraduate. The first year I was there, I worked in the, the library, and uh, you had to run up to the stacks and get the books and things that people wanted, and uh, so I did that. And then uh, my senior year, I was 
uh, resident uh, in a dormitory, so I was responsible to keep law and order, if you can imagine that. They nicknamed it Polson's Playhouse, okay? That's what, it, it didn't get too out of hand at Bob Jones University, I'll guarantee you that. But uh, then my uh, second and third year, my sophomore year and junior year, I worked in an art gallery uh, there on campus, which actually at that time housed the largest uh, collection of religious and sacred art in the Western Hemisphere. Only the Louvre in Paris had a, a greater number of pieces than were there in uh, Greenville at that time. And so I was one of the guards. Now, not just anybody could be a guard. You had to be qualified to be a guard. There were two great qualifications. First of all, you had to have a blue suit or a black suit. Number one, you had to have that. And then you had to be tall enough to reach the button to call the police if somebody got a little wacky, all right? So not just anybody. This is a highly qualified job, I want you to know. And so... Uh, uh, I didn't actually have a blue suit. I had a blue sport coat and some blue pants that almost matched and uh, made do for a suit. And I could reach the button. I never had to push it. I did see a gray-haired lady one time pick up something about 600 years old, and I was about to push that button, but uh, she put it back down. She's opening that box up. I, couldn't, I, I still can see that. There's just this jewelry box, 600 years old, and the lady was so fascinated by it. She just picked it up, opened that thing up like that. You'd think it was planter peanuts, the way she was holding that. <laughs> Scared me half to death. But that was my, my job for two years. And so a lot of time, uh, I would follow a tour that would go around. They would have tours. And so as one of the guards, we'd follow the tour. And you'd be amazed. Uh, how much just learned about art, something I never thought I'd have any interest in whatsoever, but I came to be fascinated about it, uh, by it and also to enjoy, especially in the sacred art, all the images of God's word and of faith that were a part of that. But I, I learned so much. One aspect of the tour I'll never forget, in the gallery where the tours began, there were these huge hanging tapestries, uh, ceiling to floor. They were from the late medieval, early Renaissance time in Western Europe. And they included beautiful scenes from the Bible. They had actually been woven, and these scenes were just fabulous to see woven into these tapestries there in the gallery. But when we would take the tour, one of the guides would walk the group over there and carefully pull back one of those tapestries. And you would see that the back side of those tapestries was the awfulest looking mess you've ever seen in your life. The threads just went everywhere. Every color that you could imagine. What a mess. But those master weavers of hundreds of years ago knew exactly where those threads needed to go. They knew exactly the, des the design and the image that was being portrayed. And one stitch at a time, they would make sure that on the outside of the tapestry these incredible, 
beautiful stories of the Bible, stories of faith, would be woven into these tapestries. And I want you to know, friends, I've thought about that many times since that day and to this very hour, that that's the way it is with our lives. All of our lives, in some ways, are like a tapestry, and they are the work of the master's hands, right? Sometimes on the back, (laughs) there's no sense to the threads whatsoever. Some of the strands are gold and beautiful, and some are dark and ugly. But those strands are woven together by the master's hands in order that in our lives, he might make a masterpiece of his grace. Not of our goodness, right? But of his grace, a masterpiece to his glory. And what I also want you to know is that's not just true in each individual life. That's true in the lives of God's people collectively. Every one of us has a part to play in the masterpiece display of God's glorious salvation in Jesus Christ. All of us together, all collected together, are a part of that incredible masterpiece. And it won't be until... Eternity dawn, that that incredible masterpiece will be seen in all the family of God. And it will be to his glory, right? But what I want us to know this morning is that every life has a part in that. There is, you could say, a communion. A union, a common union of God's grace that works through our lives as people of faith to make this tapestry. And every person's life is a part of it and important. And that is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is telling us through this passage that we read this morning. He is saying that how those threads of the saints who have gone before us And now our lives, the threads of our lives, and yes, of those yet to come, are all stories that are collected into this tapestry of God's grace. And it is all worked out by faith as we follow him. And so this morning, I want us to see that there is a communion in faith. He's talking about faith, and he's making it very clear that the people who have gone before us had a part, but now, boy, do we have a part to play. He's going to pick this up in chapter 12. We'll see this next week. But here we see that there is this tapestry being woven. God's glory is being displayed in these ways. Now, notice three ways. From this passage that God's glory is being displayed in this communion of the faith. First of all, you'll see here that God's glory is displayed through the victories of his people. Through the victories of his people. Listen again, verses 32 and 33. The first part of verse 33. 
He says, and what more shall I say? He's been talking about these heroes of the faith, right? And then he says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me. He says, I don't have enough time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms. Enforce justice, obtained promises, stop the mouths of lions. Now here he is describing extraordinary acts of God. All of these people, their lives are about situations that displayed extraordinary acts of God. But now what we need to be reminded of as we read these names is that these extraordinary acts took place from ordinary people. These are ordinary people. These were unalike. They're completely opposite. You can read those names and they're not like each other. They're unalike and they're unlikely. If you and I were writing the heroes of the faith, we might not include some of these names, right? But these common people who were unalike and they were unlikely had one common quality. What's the one common quality across these people? It is the quality of faith. The quality of faith. They're they're not practically perfect people. All right. Uh, They lived less than perfect lives. You look at these names. If you know the stories. They are less than perfect. And they did not have perfect faith. They're less than perfect. They did not have perfect faith. But here they are in this hall of faith. Why? Because their faith, though it wasn't perfect, was real, right? Their faith was real. Now, I want you to look again quickly. We must do this at this list of the people of faith and if you will look at this list and think about them you will be encouraged you'll be encouraged who does he mention here he mentions notice Gideon who is Gideon we could call him the fearful farmer the fearful farmer he he was so afraid of the enemies of Israel he was doing his threshing down in a wine press wine press is out in the in the middle of the vineyard vineyard you don't you don't see it he's that's where he's even doing his threshing and we can understand the land has been invaded by the midianites and the amalekites the bible says they were as numerous as the locusts and god called him to lead the people in victory <laughs> And God said, call together an army. He called together an army. And guess how many he had? 32,000 men of war. Now, that's a pretty good army. And guess what God said? "Mm -mm." You may know the story, but God began saying, that's too many. That's too many. And he took the army from 32,000 to how many? 300. 300. And Oh, how God outfitted them for war. He says, here's what I want you to take as your weapons. I want you to take torches 
and I want you to take trumpets, and I want you to take pitchers. Oh, yeah, that'll do it, right? 300 versus armies that are like the locusts in number, and you've got torches and trumpets, and you've got some pitchers. But you know the story. God gave the victory. Amazing victory led by Gideon, a fearful farmer. Then you have Barak here. Barak, you could call him the reluctant general. (laughs) You know, he was the general. He'd say, you know, he's volunteered like this. He, He was sort of like Moses, the way Moses volunteered. Do you remember that? Here I am, send Aaron. (laughs) Right? He didn't want to do this. And finally, he was encouraged or maybe shamed a little bit by a woman who was a judge at that time named Deborah. And he finally said, I'll go do this, but you've got to go with me. And so she went with him. He had an army of just 10,000 men and only showed up from two of the 12 tribes. But he routed the Canaanite army of Sisera And his army alone had 900 chariots, which were like the tanks of that day. They were routed by this army. A victory of the Lord. Then Samson. How many of you ever read Hebrews 11 and you get to Samson being there and you go, really God? (laughs) Samson. Who's Samson? He's the strongest, weakest man. Physically, he is strong. But in his character, he's weak. He had many, many failures in his life. You can read about them. But he had faith in God. He had sincere faith in God. And his faith in God, when he was so humbled by the Philistines, even in his death, brought great glory to God by an amazing victory. Who else do we read about here? Jephthah. Who's Jephthah? He's the social outcast of Israel. He was the son of a prostitute. He was the leader of a gang of ruffians. He was a leader of a very, very rough gang of people. But even though he was not all that he ought to be, he knew there was a God in Israel and claiming the word of God, claiming the word of God as his confidence, he led the people to victory over the Ammonites. Well, then you read about David. Well, David, when he was born, he would have been the most likely considered to succeed, right? No, how unlikely of a candidate was David Even his own father, when he brought his sons before Samuel, Samuel wanted to see one of them who might be the next anointed of the Lord. His own dad didn't even think to bring him in. And finally said, well, you know, I've got the youngest. He's out there taking care of the sheep. His own dad didn't even think that he was qualified for the job. How can he be a warrior? What does he know about? Why does he bring a slingshot? Oh yeah, that'll do it. He has a slingshot and faith in God. 
Now he's a teenager with an attitude. <laughs> but he has faith in God. And because of that faith in God, yes, only with that slingshot, he became the shepherd king of God's people. And he became the conqueror of many nations. He's the one that first expanded Israel as it became a nation under him. Not just a confederation of various tribal groups. Then you have Samuel. What do we know about Samuel, the prophet? Samuel was raised from childhood in the tabernacle of God. He was brought there to serve the Lord when he was just a little boy, maybe two and a half, three years of age. And he grew up in the tabernacle of God, but he also was raised among unbelieving and immoral priests who were the sons of Eli. And this little boy who was raised in the house of God was also raised among ungodly, wicked men. But by faith, God raised him up and he raised up God's worship. He cleaned up the tabernacle of God. He brought the word of God that had been misplaced for over 40 years. He was the one who brought it back. Now these are those heroes of the faith who are specifically mentioned here. But now notice there are those who are unnamed. Let's read on. There are those heroes of the faith who are unnamed, but they're not unknown, right? Don't you thank God for that? You may be unnamed, but you're not unknown to God. They were not unknown. Verse 33 tells us about these people who through faith conquered kingdoms, who through faith enforced justice, who through faith obtained promises, who through faith stopped the mouths of lions. Now he's mentioning many unnamed heroes of the faith, but as soon as he says stop the mouth of lions, the mouths of lions, you know who is he talking about? He's talking about Daniel. Daniel. A young man who had been carried away as a refugee of war, torn away from his family, forced to live in the king's palace. But from his youth, he stood for God, even in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. And in his old age, his old age, his faith gave the lions lockjaw. You remember, you will not pray to anybody else except the emperor. That's what was said. You'll only pray to the king's image. And the Bible says that Daniel did what he'd been doing for years and years and years. What did he do? Three times a day he went in and he opened his windows toward Jerusalem. And he prayed for God and to God as he always had. Here's a lesson Daniel didn't have to get prayed up when the crisis came. He was already prayed up and he kept on praying. And he was thrown in the lion's den and that is the most comfortable bed he ever had in his life. Had old Leo for a pillow. Had another one just kind of warm his feet at night. 
He spent the whole night there and he awakened. King said, Daniel, has your God whom you serve been able to deliver you? And out of the bottom there of that lion's pit came the word of a respectful man, old man of faith. Oh, king, live forever. My God, who I serve, has stopped these lions' mouths. Daniel and his associates are mentioned here. Where are his associates mentioned? Look at verse 34. Quenched the power of fire. They quenched the power of fire. Who were Daniel's associates? You know the story? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. These three faithful followers of Jehovah. They would not bow down. They wouldn't. The king says, as soon as you hear this music, you're to bow down to this shrine of my glory. And he said, if you don't bow, you're going to burn. And he said, well, we may burn, but we're not going to bow. Their faith, someone has said, listen, this is great. Their faith was on fire, but they weren't. He threw them in that fiery furnace, as he said he would. And what an incredible story, one of the greatest stories in the Bible. They heated and heated the furnace, threw them in there. And these three men are walking around the flames of fire, having a time of praise and worship. And the king looks in, and remember what he says? Didn't we put three in there? How is it I see four walking around? And the other one looks like he might be a son of the gods. Well, I personally believe and know he wasn't a son of the gods. There's only one God, but the son of God was with his servants. Their faith was on fire, but they weren't. And then here's the faith of that's combined. This is interesting. He combines the faith of two widows. The writer of Hebrews combines the faith of two widows and two prophets. He says this in verse 35. He says, women receive back their dead by resurrection. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Elijah who raised the son of the widow of Zarephath and Elisha, his successor, who raised the Shunammite's son. These women received their sons back again. Again, God with amazing power demonstrating his glory through people who were ordinary, but they had a common faith, a faith in God. Now, I want us to stop here and just remind us of two things. Just remind us of two things here. Number one, these stories were not recorded in the Word of God so that you and I could read them millennia later and to say, now, is that awesome or what? Isn't it great to know that story? No, it's not about knowing the story. It's about knowing the God of the story, right? 
How do we increase our faith? These were written down for our admonition, our encouragement, and our instruction. How do you grow in faith, brothers and sisters? You grow in the faith. Anybody knows that answer. You grow in faith by Facebook. That's how you grow in the faith. What do I mean? You put your face in the book. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing what? The Word of God. This is our faith book. And just on a little aside, you ought to have more time in the faith book than your Facebook. I'm just saying. If we were nearly as acquainted with the stories in our faith book as we are with some stories in Facebook, we'd be much better off. Facebook can be a great tool. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not on it myself. I'm behind Susan. <laughs> but I read, and I'm encouraged by some. And I see others. Well, I'll just let that go. Okay. They're recorded for our faith. Secondly, these people of faith did not know the results. You have to understand this. This is such a, a tricky thing for us. We read the Bible and guess what? We know the end of the story. It is like these Bible stories are sitcoms to us. It's all going to work out in 27 minutes. But guess what? These people didn't know what the outcome was going to be. They didn't know what was going to happen and they had faith even though they didn't know what the results would be. And friends, I want to tell you, the greatest test of faith is faith that is faithful. Faithfulness is the great test of faith. Not do you know the answer, not do you know it's all going to work out, but in spite of whether you know the answer or not, you're going to be faithful. That's faith. I love the testimony of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I love their testimony. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We may burn, but we will not bow. That was their faith. They had no prior knowledge that undoubtedly they were going to be delivered. They knew God was able to do it. But they also knew that he might not deliver them. But they were determined whether God miraculously delivered them from their persecution or not. They would not bow the knee to an ungodly law. Sometimes, listen carefully, God does not deliver. And I wish I had time to stop here, but I must go. But friends, I want you to know something. 
It is absolutely not true, and don't ever believe it. That people are only delivered because they have faith in God. And if people had enough faith in God, they would always be delivered from their problems and persecution. That is absolutely not the message of the Bible. As a matter of fact, that is just spiritual abuse. Never, ever, ever. Tell somebody that the reason they're not having the miracle is because they don't have enough faith. That's abuse. How do I know that? Because notice one word in verse 35. And the whole passage turns on it. That some people, they bring glory to God through suffering through the suffering of his people God gets glory verse 35 says women receive back their dead by resurrection and here's the key word some some were what tortured refusing to accept release so they might rise again it goes on others Suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. Imagine this. This legacy of faith is a legacy of suffering. Who are these people? Some of these people he's mentioning are from the Old Testament times. Isaiah, according to ancient church history and Jewish history, Isaiah was sawn in two by King Manasseh. Sawn in two. Jeremiah was stoned by the Jewish remnant that he was sent to minister to after he ministered to them faithfully all the years. Then they stoned him to death. Some of these are people in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They are the people who were suffering torture under the various kings that ravished the land. And some of these were people in the church. They knew, these Christians knew people like this that had suffered floggings and imprisonment and trials of mockings. There were some of them still alive who knew the first martyr, Stephen. There were some still alive who knew the first apostle who was murdered for his faith, the apostle James. And friends, that legacy has continued to us through the ages. Even to God followers, people of faith, in this present age, do you recognize that it is estimated by missiologists, experts in these studies, that in the 20th century, the, just the past century, more people were martyred for their faith in Jesus than in all the previous centuries of the church? It's estimated last year, 100,000 people last year gave their lives for Jesus worldwide. And this moment, while we sit here in this wonderful privilege of freedom, 100 million of our brothers and sisters in Jesus cannot gather like this, and they serve the Lord under active persecution. 100 million, at least. And then, friends, listen, in this very room, 
in this very room, there are people I'm looking at now. And I'm honored to be in your presence and to be your pastor. Because you, in your suffering, are faithful to Jesus Christ. You've been faithful. And I've seen it, having been the, there these many years, these, here these many years, people who have honored the Lord by suffering to His glory. I tell you, there are many, it's true, of whom the world is not worthy. The writer says all of them, these Old and New Testament Christians, are people of one great union. That's what we celebrate, communion. We have a common union in Jesus Christ, in our faith. Let me tell you, just to bring this together, of how God's great story is being put together. When you read the book of the Revelation, we see the city of God coming down from heaven in a vision. You remember this? And the Bible tells us that there's 12 foundation stones of that city and the 12 foundations are the tribes of Israel or rather the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their names are written there. And there's 12 gates. And whose names are over the 12 gates? The tribes of Israel. What do you see there in that picture? The people of God, Old Covenant, New Covenant, tribes of Israel, apostles of the Lord, all united as God's people through what? Faith. Their faith looked forward to the coming of Messiah. Our faith looks backward to Jesus who has come and died and resurrected and coming again. But where does all the eyes of the people of God look? Upward, right? We're looking for a city, verse 10, that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. All the stories of faith end in one family, the family of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you the end of the story of every life as a follower of Jesus. You know what the end of the story is? Of all the followers of Jesus, here's the end of the story. They all lived happily ever after. Amen. We're going to home and we're going to live happily ever after. I'm going to ask our friends to come now as we are about to receive these elements that remind us of our faith in the Lord Jesus. This bread which represents his body, the cup which represents his blood. As they're coming down, prepare your heart as we say, I enter into this expression of my faith. My faith is in Jesus Christ. He is my bread of life. We receive this bread and we're reminded of his body. <clears throat>